woods in the springtime. I love Paris in the fall. I love Paris in the winter when it drizzles. I love Paris in the summer when it sizzles. I love Paris every moment, every moment of the year. I love Paris. Why, why do I love Paris? Because my love is near in the springtime. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, January 30th, 2022. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Are the both of you uh, dug out from the big uh, snowstorm blizzard super bomber thing? I haven't left the apartment. <laughs> well, I had to go last night uh, to see Intimate Apparel at Lincoln Center, and I was going to walk, uh, so I made it about a block, and then a bus came, and I got on. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, glad to hear that. I, I, I would have gone underground. I don't even know if I would have gone on a bus, you know? Yeah, but the problem is, for me, I have to walk, like, a half a mile to get to a subway. <laughs> Uh, mm, so, I see. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, one of the things I did notice on social media during this uh, snowstorm was that Broadway was open. And uh, lots of people were posting that they were able to get into shows that were otherwise hard to get into. Moulin Rouge, Hamilton, and music all man. type of music man. Oh, music man. Music man, mm-hmm. music man. Did you see the, uh, the scandal about... Uh, Music Man not inviting reviewers until opening <laughs> sure, night. Sure, sure. <laughs> and, uh, as, and as someone said to me last night uh, at um, Intimate Apparel, this has Scott Rudin's handprints all over yes, it. Yes, yeah. it does. You know, anyone who thinks he's not still pulling some strings from... Well, I mean, Rick Miramontes and Scott Rudin are really the same person. They Have you know. ever seen them drink a glass of water while the other one's there speaking? <laughs> no, I've not seen that. And and let's be honest. Come on. My Music Man review is already written. I haven't seen it yet. So, <laughs> Well, that may be what they're afraid of. No, I, you know, I, I don't think uh, that such a situation is, is a good one. I, I'm, this really started back with Stanley Kaufman, um, the one year that he was critic of the Times in the 65, 66. 60s and he's the one who first asked for uh, that extra time i've seen people attribute it to richard eater but it really was stanley kaufman um and especially uh, you may have heard about the famous david merrick scandal where um david merrick um 
had Stanley Kaufman come to a performance of Philadelphia, Here I Come, which he had produced, and then said, uh, had a little sign in the door saying, uh, no performance tonight, there's a rat in the generator, um, so that he would be forced to come to the uh, actual opening night. And the other problem was, and this is the day when we had so many more Broadway shows, a play called Hostile Witness was going to open um, the next night. So he, he not only made Stanley Kaufman write a review that night, of uh, Philadelphia, here I come, but hostile witness too. So he drove him crazy. Um, so it's really, it, yeah. But the thing is, <laughs> I have to. I, I wonder if you guys feel the same way. When I see a show that I really hate, that I am furious about, I get a night's sleep. Next day, mm-hmm. I take a shower. You know, I calm down. You know, my my negative reviews. Not yeah. that there are that many of them, but my negative reviews aren't as negative as a result of having a night to sleep on it and um, and take a shower. So uh, I I think that extra time is worthwhile. But you know, hats off to those guys who used to have to go back, who used to run up the aisle um, like crazy to get to their offices and do it right then and then on typewriters yet. Yeah, so uh, my my hats off to them always uh, for having to do it under very difficult circumstances. My hats off to them too, but I do think that we all agree that you get better criticism if you don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess I guess it's just grandstanding, and and some of the language in that. Uh, statement seemed a little offensive to me but whatever yeah well, that's been stated too you know um, but you know i remember harvey sabinson who again was um associated with david merrick uh, david merrick's press agent for a long long time uh he uh one time at a party said to me you know oh bring back the glamour of opening night have those critics there you know the glamour of opening night is <laughs> all very nice for people who are insiders you know yes you have the glamour of opening night and being in those tuxedos <laughs> and going to the park but the, the average person <laughs> doesn't have that um luxury of the opening night uh, he doesn't have tickets for opening night uh, so as a result what's going to happen you know I, he's going to come later so what do, we're not going to accommodate the people who are insiders just because it's more glamorous to have an opening night it doesn't serve the production better really if the critics have to run back in a hurry and do something right um yeah how many times even on this podcast when it's over we've said oh gee i wish i would have mentioned blah 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 yeah you know i mean so i mean really the the heat of the moment is 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 too hot um we've got to cool down right i i was uh i I was thinking just the opposite direction that uh you know uh, dkc o&m and rick miramontes might benefit from being nicer to the critics I have to tell you that, uh, have you guys ever uh, been invited or gone to one of those uh, press events for um, Cirque du Soleil? Oh, yeah. Mm. Yes. I mean, Cirque du Soleil, they invite you, they wine you, they dine you, they give you excellent food, they do all sorts of other stuff, and you're like, wow, that was a pretty enjoyable Mm. evening. Even if you're not even thinking totally about the performance, you're like, that was a really good time, you know. It reminds me of all those free margaritas they gave out before uh, Margaritaville. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, thank goodness! Oh, thank goodness! Laura stayed for the second half of that one. So. <laughs> sure, you know, did, Linda did too. Yeah, no, yeah. Especially. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so um, and, and then of course. That brought out all the snark that said, uh, you know, there's uh, there's trouble in River City. Uh, oh, well, I don't think it's that. I think it's just grandstanding and Scott Rudin. And that's what I think. But who knows? Yeah. yeah. 
So, all right, let's move into things that we have seen. Uh, Peter, Michael, and I got a chance to see Skeleton Kruger. Skeleton Crew over at Manhattan Theater Club. So, Peter, why don't you get us started off on this uh, play? Yes, Manhattan Theater Club, but uh, at the Friedman Theater right on Broadway, uh, as opposed to their city center space on 55th Street. Um, this is a play we saw in uh, five years ago, and um, most of us liked it very much, and I don't think that's going to change now. Uh, Dominique Marceau's uh, play is, is very, very potent and talks about Detroit and how difficult things are there. She wrote a trilogy about it. This is one play of it. The play was very effective uh, five years ago. Uh, it's been, I believe, completely recast. And now Felicia Rashad uh, is in it. I I was very interested to see how she would be greeted when she came on the stage. Hmm. And uh, the entrance applause was quite potent because there were a lot of people who were very um, apprehensive about um, her being in the play because she had gone to bat for Bill Cosby, um, who a lot of people did not go to bat for. So um, she really was warmly welcomed and she's terrific in the play. She really is quite wonderful as this woman who's been working for 25 years in this factory. And now she has to get to 30 years because her pension will be substantially better if she can make it to 30. Um, we'll see if she can. You know, this, these are tough times in Detroit and certainly in this factory as well. Brandon J. Durden uh, plays the foreman who's a nice guy. He means well. He wants things to go smoothly. He's very accommodating. He does have his rules. He doesn't want Faye to smoke in the break room. No, he doesn't want um, Reggie to gamble in the break room. No, but nevertheless, when it really comes down to being a fair and decent person, that's who he is. And he certainly shows that throughout the entire play. We also have uh, Joshua Boone as Dez. Dez is the the one I'm speaking of who is the gambler. And um, Dez, unfortunately, um, has other issues. And I think he worries about being treated unfairly. And yet um, we do have a, a very taut situation in the play where he and... Um, the foreman, Reggie, um, have to really come to cross purposes. And it's a tremendously dramatic scene. And luckily enough, um, it is directed quite, quite well. Um, it's directed all the way quite, quite well. But um, this scene is especially taught um, by Ruben Santiago Hudson, who's no stranger to this stage, having just done Lackawanna Blues on it. So um, there's a nice Broadway debut by Shante Adams as Shanita. She's uh, pregnant. And uh, we do get the impression that she's a single mother and she has her problems as well, needless to say. But in, in essence, what's really sad is that the veteran Faye is the one who has the most problems, more problems than we might imagine. As the play goes on, we find out she has a substantially large problem. And, but in the famous statement that you don't, necessarily have a family that you find your family there's a family here and um and the family values here are quite strong values and so while there's a lot to be depressed by in skeleton crew there's a lot that makes you feel very good about people too so um so i liked it a lot and i was very glad to revisit it all right michael what did you think i had not seen the play before and i really loved it uh i i loved everything about it uh i thought the the s basic situation was very compelling and 
the acting was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, some of the best naturalistic acting you'll ever see on Broadway. And really very, very well directed by Ruben Santiago Hudson. Um, yeah, I, I was uh, I was uh, uh, amused and uh, I guess heart- interested in the in the great reception uh, that Felicia Rashad uh, got at her first entrance. And it was interesting for me because uh, partly because at first I didn't recognize her <laughs> uh, and I almost recognized her partly because of the entrance applause. I thought, oh, that must be Felicia Rashad. For some reason, she looked shorter to me uh, than I pictured her. Uh, and I have seen her on stage in the past, but she, uh, you know, she comes on and she, I think she, I think she almost turns up stage to, to clock in or something. So you don't actually get a full view of her face right at the beginning. And she's dressed very much down. And so uh, I thought, oh, well, I guess that's Felicia Rashad. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, it, and indeed it was. And here's an interesting thing that I thought maybe it was me, uh, but my friend that I went with said exactly the exact same thing. Uh, only in the first few minutes, we had a great deal of trouble understanding what she was saying. And it seemed like it was a combination of volume and diction. And I was really worried about it because um, I didn't think it would get better. But then suddenly it did. Uh, so I don't know if my ear had to adjust to her speaking in that theater or the pitch of voice she was using or whatever. But um, for what it's worth, my my friend did have the same issue. Um, and I'm glad that it only lasted for really just a couple of minutes. Um, <clears throat> here's another interesting thing. My friend said he works in a hotel uh, and he said something like he said uh, at one point, um, I guess at intermission, he said, well, aside from the specifics of the story, he goes, this is the world that I work in. Uh, just wow. all the all the issues with unions and management, you know, relating relating to labor uh, and all of that stuff. And he said um, to the point where he told he had texted a friend of his who he works with at the hotel that he was going to see Skeleton Crew and the friend had already seen it and texted back an intermission. So um, how do you feel spending some more time in the lobby of the hotel? (laughs) Mm. Um, So isn't that interesting? You would think that an auto factory in Detroit would would be quite dissimilar from the lobby of a of a you know a luxury hotel in in midtown manhattan but i guess not so much in some ways and that's the whole universality thing that we're always talking about the um, universality in specifics of theater right right Mm. um i just i thought the acting was incredible joshua boone i suppose i saw him in um holler if you hear me because i did see that uh, but i didn't recall him specifically from that show he i thought he was absolutely great just really superb acting but really every every single person um i thought it was interesting that they chose to have this device of um having this performer uh, uh, that's how it's identified there's a uh, f- a fellow named adesola osaka osaka lumi Adesola Osakalumi, who comes out and dances uh, at the beginning and then at a few uh, places, uh, like scene change places throughout the show. And I wasn't sure what made them add that and also what, um, if any purpose it served and or if it added to the experience. What what was your 
thoughts on um, what I thought that was because he's making so many herky jerky moves um, <laughs> that I think that they were indicating the type of um, automaton status that these people have to do while they're working. That's the best I could do. Oh, yeah. And I think you're right about that. It was that. Is there a name for that kind of robotic type of dancing? There must be, but I don't know. That you often see people doing on the streets. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, that's what he did. Um, And I I really enjoyed it. I I just I was curious as to what what prompted them to add it. Um, I, I, I urge everyone to see this. It's it's really very, very much worthwhile. I, I was engaged from the first moment to the last. Here's an interesting thing I I do have to mention. Um, in in the playbill, there is a, an insert that says a note from the playwright, Dominique Morris. So, and even the title of it is kind of interesting and maybe controversial, Permissions for Engagement. And then it says, uh, it's not that long, so I'll read the whole thing. Consider this an invitation to be yourselves in this audience. You are allowed to laugh audibly. You are allowed to have audible moments of reaction and response. My work welcomes a few mm-hmm's and uh-huh's should you need to use them, just maybe in moderation, uh-huh. only, only when you really need to vocalize. This can be church for some of us, and testifying is allowed. There is all, this is also live theater, and the actors need you to engage with them in a way that doesn't distract or thwart their performance. Please be an audience member that joins with the village, either silently or vocally, in support of the journey we will take collectively. Exhale together, laugh together, say amen should you need to. This is community. Let's go. So I find that very interesting. This is, of course, um, the, germane to what we have read that's, that uh, perhaps Black audiences engage in different ways with theater than than other audiences and uh since dominique marceau uh is herself um uh, african-american i i guess maybe she felt uh more comfortable in writing this but i i do wonder if what specifically i wonder if there were some incidents early on in previews that led for this to be added or if it was there from the beginning based on previous uh maybe the previous production or other previous productions. So I, but, but I certainly, I, it's the first I've seen of anything like this. And I just thought it was worth noting for that reason. I saw skeleton crew pretty early on in its run and it was already, that note was already in there. So, uh, okay. Thanks. uh, I, I don't think it was added per se, but, um, uh, some things to catch up on here. Rob Johnson in our chat room is saying that that style of dance is called pop and lock. Oh, oh thank you. Pop, P O P and lock, L O C K. Which I thought sense. there was a name for it. I just couldn't think of it. <laughs> and uh, I, I also had the same questions that Michael had. But Peter, you hit uh, you hit upon well, something that, that that I think you know uh, that making it seem like robots in the factory and type of thing might be part of the through line. It was very interesting and entertaining and i wondered myself what it added to it but the 
robots in the factory thing makes a lot of sense to me. Yes. So, well, yeah. also, there are tons of projections of machines working. Yeah, um, exactly. Ro- robotic arms working. So I, I think uh, that has something. To do. They didn't scrimp on the set, I'll tell you, because there are even mm-hmm. beams jutting out from the, the proscenium arch to indicate um, metal beams. Um, so they didn't have to have those. Nobody would have said, uh, gee, I went yeah. to Skeleton Crew. I was very disappointed they didn't have metal beams. <laughs> Uh, so they really spent money on it and um and the set is wildly wacky in the way that those break rooms are with this that and the other thing here and there that you know junk piles up and and all that and you know in a in an era where we're seeing so many musicals where you see lockers um here's a play where we see lockers but a very serious play and uh and yet a heartwarming play in its own way very strangely Hmm. so I wanted to bring up something that might be a spoiler, and we'll talk about it for a few. And if you, Peter, Michael, if you feel like uh, it is a spoiler, let me know and we'll take it out. So uh, I got to the theater uh, actually quite early, about 30 minutes before curtain or so. um, And I was one of the first people uh, in the theater. And uh, especially when I'm traveling during the weekday, I always have a bag with me that has got a laptop and uh-huh. a charger and all sorts uh-huh. of other crap in it that and it's 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 just it's a backpack with that. And so I get to the front door of the Freedman and the and typically I get get to the theater and the security people, you know, mm-hmm. do a cursory search of the bag and I go in. So this uh, security guard stopped me and made me unpack the entire bag on the sidewalk in front of the theater. Wow. And we wow. took everything, and it's one of those bags that's got like a million pouches and things like this, and I was getting more anxious and more anxious, and I was, and there was nothing wrong with it. There was no, nothing in my bag that was illegal. I was just no, no, no. aggravated about it. Sure. And then, uh, and, and then I, nothing happened, and I packed sure. up and went into the theater. Um, and then well, there's that. Tough times, you know? <laughs> there's the scene in Skeleton oh. Crew. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Boy, and, in literature as in life, right? And I wondered if <laughs> this had happened to anybody else, or if if it was just coincidence, or what was was happening there. Because in the scene in Skeleton Crew, where they search his bag at the at the factory, yeah, yeah, yeah. and. I, wow! I, yeah. I, in literature, uh, like, yeah. yeah, and I, I thought that was. Uh, I wonder if maybe would... maybe the tail did wag the dog there that they did get uh, inspired. Quotation marks around the word by that. Um, I see your point. Yeah, and wow. so uh, I, I related, uh, you know, a little bit to that, but not not surely not as much as other other folks in the audience that were. Uh, as, as Michael was uh, referring back to D- Dominic Morisot's note in the program, uh, audibly uh, uh, doing what's uh, a, like a call and response type of thing that you have in, in some churches um, in the audience, they were uh, get you know audibly upset about what things that were happening on the stage, and they were letting people know that uh, they were upset about it. Um, it's funny, uh, Jeremy O'Harris was on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me this weekend, um, and he talked about his, uh, uh, was it Shakira or somebody that was texting to to Jeremy during the uh, slave, during slave play? Or was Rihanna not? Thank you. Oh, Rihanna. Rihanna, Rihanna, Rihanna was te- texting uh, to Jeremy O'Harris 
uh, and he, and he said that he got, he got he was um, called on the carpet because he said that you know you can text during my shows as long as you're texting about my shows, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, but it uh, you know uh, this uh, this call and response type of thing I think is uh, is being uh, you know we're seeing it at six we saw it at you know when rent. I first noticed it when rent was very big and the people in the front row, as I used to say, are trying to become part of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so I, I think that it, it, it has happened throughout uh, Broadway's life at different, different times. I mean, uh, I haven't been back to Wicked in a long time, but sometimes Wicked, I, I sort of remember Wicked audiences uh, getting very crazy and into it and certainly Mamma Mia things like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um, uh, well that's because so many people are used to going to concerts uh, uh, the concert, the mm-hmm. concert mentality has taken over here that's um, part of it yes yeah, it really is um, and uh, so we, we have to expect that Cheryl Hodges Selden is bringing up in the chat room Dream Girls during Dream Girls yeah, you see that sure sure <laughs> and uh, uh I I could do and I'm telling you I'm not going uh in the front of the in the front of Friedman I could do that. So the point in Skeleton Crew where I could see that it could could be a problem is uh where at one point two of the characters get together romantically. Mm-hmm. And uh there was a little bit of you know mm-hmm. a, a very vocal response to yeah. that at my performance but nothing i thought that you know that was over the top but i could see how that might be really uh, bothersome to those actors if it was if it was a little too much so uh skeleton crew got <laughs> very good notices mm-hmm. um it's it's quite a talent and uh what's happening up on the stage there uh and it is scheduled through February twentieth. So I'm wondering if it, could they extend? Is there something in back of? I, I was I meant to look if there was something in back at the, the at the Friedman coming in in April or so. Well, uh, given that so many productions uh, have postponed uh, or canceled entirely, it, I wouldn't be surprised if this were to extend its run and they would simply uh, let the next production go, whatever it is. Um, and this is no reflection on what, what the next production is. It's just that I have seen theaters, especially around the country, say, well, we're canceling uh, the next one. So uh, who knows? That's, uh, we're not wishing this on. on uh, we mm-hmm. love Skeleton. We'd like best of both worlds. The Skeleton True run now and forever uh, with the next show coming in, too. But, um, but uh, <laughs> nothing is... <laughs> predictable these days nothing so uh, um, <laughs> how i learned to drive is coming in that's coming mm-hmm. in that's mm-hmm. not that's not delaying mm-hmm. so uh yeah paula vogel's how i learned to drive uh with the returning cast mm-hmm. uh, uh mary louise parker david morris wow that's uh so I, I i'm wondering because i think that skeleton crew might have a lot of uh award potential and uh it, you know it's hard when things are not there during award seasons but well it is mtc so they you know and they so they they are a subscription uh house That's true, uh, yeah. i wonder if they could conceivably move it to one of their off broadway spaces but mm. those are probably taken as well <laughs> mm. uh but anything could happen we'll see 
All right. So that is Skeleton Crew at Manhattan Theatre Club's Friedman Theatre on Broadway. Uh, it's running through February 20th, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So, Michael, uh, as a follow-up to uh, our discussion with Ricky Ian Gordon a few weeks ago, mm. uh, you got to see a New York City Opera co-production with the National Yiddish Theatre folks, Benet, at the Garden of Finzini Contini's. <laughs> The garden. Did I get it halfway right? Um, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. It's it's the garden of the Finzi Contini. The garden of the Finzi Contini. Yeah, uh, and then the S is on it because I guess if you make it a plural in English, then you would add an S, but not in Italian. Mm. And also, it's uh, yeah. It's I know it's hard, but it's Folksbina. Folks, Bina. You know, yes. I, it's just that I get it wrong every show, so I'm just keeping my. But, and alive. I look like that, so I mean, you're you're excused. Yeah, and I've heard many, many people say oh, it sure. many different oh, ways. Absolutely. <laughs> I think um, we should just call it NYTF. <laughs> That's fine. That's NYTF. fine. <laughs> That's it from now on. Okay, so Michael, what'd you think of it? Well, to start off with, uh, you know, relating back to your point about having your bag searched at Skeleton Crew, um, if you do go see a show at the uh, Museum of Jewish Heritage uh, or, or any event there, um, right. which uh, I had been there previously, obviously, for their phenomenal production of Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, mm-hmm. uh, you, you will have uh, you will encounter airport level security. Sorry to say, you know, because it is the Museum of Jewish Heritage, and I think we don't need to explain that any further. Also, I happened to see uh, the opening night of the Garden of the Finzi Contini was, I'm sure, purposely scheduled for Holocaust Remembrance Day, Mm. uh, which is entirely appropriate because the basic story is about a very wealthy uh, Jewish family living in Italy, Jewish Italian family. just prior to World War II, and uh, they are, are starting to experience uh, uh, the discrimination at first, just discrimination uh, against them uh, for being Jews that is being fostered by the Nazis and then the the, the, the regime in in Italy, uh, Mussolini, etc. And then it gets worse and worse, and they eventually, uh, most of the family uh, winds up being deported to a concentration camp. So it, uh, this was originally a novel by Giorgio Bassani, and then it became a film uh, that was released in 1970 and won the Academy Award as Best Foreign Film that year. I did not see it then. But I remember, uh, you know, I remember it winning. I remember all the discussion of it. So I went in cold as far as the story, uh, you know, other than reading a synopsis beforehand. But it's a it's a really wonderful subject for an opera. This just beautifully done by Ricky and Gordon, who wrote the music and Michael Corey, who wrote the libretto. Uh, the uh, and it's did my heart good, you know, again to see that the New York City Opera, the reconstituted New York City Opera, is still trying to make a go of it. Um, they 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 are just against incredible odds. I mean, they even before the pandemic, they they had the odds mm-hmm. against them. Uh, I, I can't go into the history of that company because it's just too long and too too complicated, but um. They basically went out of business, and then this fellow Michael Capasso uh, and his colleagues have been trying to revive it, and they uh, 
you know, they have not done a, a, a performance in the what used to be called the New York State Theater uh, because that was given up by the New York City Opera years ago. Uh, but they did. Uh, I saw a production of uh, Tosca and also Candide, uh, both of which they did at the Rose Hall uh, Jazz, Jazz for Lincoln Center, and they performed in other places. And now here they are at the uh, in this theater at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. So this is a production, uh, co-production of the New York City Opera and the National Yiddish Theater Folks Bina. And uh, I think it was wonderful to see. It's an epic story and uh, an epic opera, although uh, I, I suppose as operas go, it's not that long. It's three hours with one intermission. Um, and lots of operas are longer than that. Uh, it was a beautifully done minimalist production that 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 uh, benefited greatly from the use of lots and lots of projections uh, set and projection designed by John Farrell. And it's this production concept by Richard Stafford directed by Michael Capasso and Richard Stafford uh, conducted by James Lowe, who did a beautiful job conducting a, uh, I, I didn't count, but I think it was like a 15 or 20 piece orchestra and there's no pit in this theater and there was no room on stage. So they had to put the orchestra basically in the, um, in the audience up against the stage. Uh, it would have been house house, right. Uh, and, but I thought they sounded just great. And the company was, was fabulous. I, I have some knowledge of, you know, opera, but the kind of the people you would tend to see, if you go to the Met, uh, are not uh, they're just in a whole different world from these people uh, for the most part who who sing contemporary american operas uh so i would like to sing aloud rachel blaustein blaustein or blaustein who played micole the the daughter of the finzi contini uh and then brian james meyer as alberto and anthony Charamitaro as Giorgio and Matt Chufitelli as Giampi Malnate. They they were among the standouts in a really, really stellar cast. A very, very powerful work. And I'm glad that I saw it, uh, especially on Holocaust Remembrance Day. It was it was quite moving, uh, especially the final scene uh, as it was sung and staged. So um it, it's having a short run there but i you know i'm sorry i didn't check it out i think it goes into next week so you might want to if you can get down there uh check it out i i imagine it will be seen in a lot of regional opera companies um over the next few years so if you don't catch it at the uh, museum of uh jewish heritage you might be able to find it somewhere else it's uh it's playing through February sixth, but a lot of shows are sold out already. But I'll have ah. a link to everything in the show notes, and uh, they can see. Uh, and Peter, you going down there tomorrow, right, or today? No, today. Um, today. Michael, super titles. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Good. Which is also the case with Intimate Apparel, Ricky mm. and Gordon's other mm. uh, new opera, which is playing at the Mitzi Newhouse, and which we'll talk about maybe next week because mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't officially open till Monday. Mm -hmm. All right. So, uh, as I mentioned, it's uh, playing uh, through February 6th. Um, that last performance of February 6th is sold out, but they do have February 1, 2, 3, and 5 available uh, at the moment right now. But uh, 
you know, check it out. And then uh, next up for uh, National Yiddish Theater is uh, Harmony. Harmony. Yeah. Harmony. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I am so interested to see that. It's Mm -hmm. been Mm -hmm. a morning for decades. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Patrick Wilson, you know, doing it so many years ago. Danny Burstein in that production too. Yeah, Brian oh, yeah. Darcy James was in one. Yeah, yeah. that's right. It's, they've all people have grown up in that show, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. or through that show. Or uh, for those who don't know what we're talking about, it's a musical by Barry Manilow. So uh, it's uh, very much anticipated for that reason too. All right, so Peter, you got in the Felicia Mobile, headed to Philadelphia, <laughs> and uh, saw a street car named, a streetcar named Desire at the Arden Theater Company. Uh, so tell us about it. Well, um, whenever people talk about streetcar, they often talk about uh, Stanley, who's playing Stanley, because um, after all, Marlon Brando was so unforgettable in the movie. He only got an Oscar nomination, only in quotation marks, because Humphrey Bogart was being awarded for the African Queen. But the other three that you always hear about, people always mention, you know, Blanche, certainly. Vivian Lee got an Oscar. Mitch, uh, Carl Mulder got an Oscar. <laughs> Stella Kim Hunter got an Oscar. So those are the roles you usually hear about. And while everyone in those roles in the Arden Company is terrific, and I'll go into detail about that, I'm going to mention Eunice first. Ah. Now, people might say, uh, you, who, who, who's, who's Eunice? Well, she's the upstairs neighbor. And uh, Taisha Marie Canales plays her. And I'm telling you, you wish you had a neighbor like this. Um, like a good neighbor, Taisha is there. I'm telling you, because she is so warm and so helpful and so considerate to these people who are in trouble. And uh, every she makes every scene count. So I do want to mention her first because I don't want to forget her. And um, this is the 10th production of Streetcar I've seen dating back to 1969. And um, I've never been as impressed by Eunice as I have here. So congratulations, uh, Ms. Canales. Fine. Okay. So the meat of the matter, let's talk about the uh, people we know and love. Uh, This is a very uh, potent play because it gives a different take on the eternal triangle. The eternal triangle is often used to discuss uh, a situation where a man comes between two women or a woman comes between two men, but it's usually romantic. Here, a woman comes between a married couple and uh, the woman who comes between the married couple is, of course, Blanche, the sister of Stella, who comes in and tries to be very grand, uh, even though we will find out later that her behavior hasn't been grand at all. So um, we are I'm sure I'm telling things that many of you out there know, but nevertheless, it's it's a it's an old world play from the vantage point that Eunice lets Blanche into the apartment. She has the key and she lets her in. She just takes at face value that this is Stella's sister, and fine, right this way, your table's waiting. I mean, it's really a different era. <laughs> There's no questioning that uh, this might be somebody else entirely. Um, <laughs> it doesn't take long for Blanche to sneak a drink, and uh, and when. Stella comes home, uh, pretends that she hasn't had a drink. We also find that Stella drinks a Coke. There's going to be a reason for that as time goes on. So uh, Stanley comes in 
sweat stained like crazy. I mean, there's a stain on his back that looks like an ironing board. And of course, this is um, something that is anathema to the so-called high toned uh, Blanche. Um, So immediately we see that um, these two uh, have very different values. Um, And she is so the the actress who plays her, uh, Catherine Powell, is so aghast when Stanley, the excellent Stanley by Matteo Scamell, um, is so aghast when Stella is in the bathroom and he says, you haven't fallen in, have you? I mean, she that is so crude to her. And this is like within the first few minutes of her being there. And she is just so repulsed. But she was repulsed to begin with where they live. She never expected it was going to be the type of neighborhood or the type of um, apartment that it turned out to be. But uh, as bad as that is, um, the person who's inhabiting it is striking her as um, quite the wrong. <laughs> they go at it very, very quickly. Terry Nolan, uh, the director, co-founder of Arden, who's been with us since day one, needless to say, if he's the co-founder, um, has such an energetic production. I mean, sure, it's two hours and 45 minutes, but it flies by um, because it's so energetic. And right away, these two are uh, cross purposes. Um, I found very interesting that uh, Blanche uh, asks her sister to get her a lemon Coke with chipped ice. And uh, she comes back with a simple Coke bottle. It's such a nice metaphor that Blanche isn't going to get what she's going to get, what she asked for. <laughs> and um, I thought that was a very effective moment. So, you know, something occurred to me, never occurred to me before about this play. You hear the guys playing poker and one eye jacks a wild. Look, I don't know much about poker, but aren't serious poker players devoid of um, like one eye jacks a wild, um, that any cards are wild, jokers are wild? Uh, those who know poker, please correct me if I'm wrong. But I would think that um, people who are really serious about their poker do not have wild cards. Anyway, that has no no bearing on um, the Arden production, but um, I'm questioning what Tennessee Williams wrote way back when. I'd love to find out if I'm wrong about that. By the way, um, the Arden is a flexible space, and here it's much like Circle in the Square. As you walk in, uh, you can sit um, in, in that exact area where you, you just walked in, or you can go to the sides. Circle in the Square is a perfect analogy. Um, and there's no back section. Sometimes Circle in the Square is literally everybody has a seat, um, in, uh, can sit in an actual oval. But here it really is um, three quarters. Why do I mention this? I'm going to urge if you go, and I think you should go, I'm going to urge you to sit on the right side where I was because. Um, much of the um, action takes place more on the right side than the left. Now, you might say, well, that's not so bad, but there is a curtain that separates the apartment that is pulled over from time to time. Now, in reality, I'm not saying they made a mistake. In reality, it's a solid curtain, but here it's a translucent curtain so we can see what's going on. Still, if you have a choice, and I'm sure tickets are scarce for this production because uh, it's so good, uh, sit on the right because that's where much happens. What also happens on the right is that Stanley hits Stella. Now, in the Elia Kazan movie, the wonderful movie in which Vivian Lee gives, I believe, the greatest performance I've ever seen an actress given a movie, um, he um, honors the tenets of Greek tragedy. He actually happens, uh, he has her hit her while she, they both go into another room very quickly and he hits her there so you don't see her hit her. Terry Nolan does the best he can here by um, putting him, uh, having it happen uh, with some um, of the apartment 
um, scenery blocking it. So if you're on the left side, you're not going to see it at all. If you're on the right, you will. So that may be a reason why you might want not to sit on house right. I will warn you about that. <clears throat> so very nice to see Stanley dressed in a suit and tie later in the show because he does have a good job. It reminds us of this. The real trouble is occurring because Blanche as uh, comes between them, a, a, a relative who just won't leave. The famous Benjamin Franklin uh, statement that fish and uh, visitors stink after two days. Well, uh, She's here much longer. So uh, so that's a big problem. I'm telling you, there's a moment that's so powerful. Emily Krauss, who plays Stella, the way she puts on her lipstick in one scene actually shows us how tired she is of Blanche being there. It's really something. These little details, you know, I mean, they're, they're really quite wonderful. And um there's there's also a moment where uh, Mitch now Mitch is uh, played by Akeem Davis. He's the poker player who takes a fancy to Blanche and really believes that perhaps they could really amount to something. And there's a fabulous moment where um, he shows up to, to take her out on a date and she says, bow to me. And the look on Akeem Davis's face really shows that this is the first time he's having his doubts about her. He will have many more doubts as time goes on. Believe me, you know, so, so, but of course it's always been known as Blanche's show, even though if you ever saw the fabulous made for TV movie, who am I this time with Christopher Walken playing Stanley and Susan Sarandon playing uh, Stella Blanche is barely in it, but anyway, it's, it's a look for it. It is a terrific, terrific thing based on a Kurt Vonnegut story, which ironically enough is nothing like what Kurt Vonnegut usually uh, writes. There's nothing wild or science fiction about it at all. Mm-hmm. I digress. I'm sorry. Anyway, here's um, Catherine Powell having her first mad scene. Essentially, people always talk about um, she goes mad at the end of the play. She has a bad scene when she has to talk about her first husband and how that didn't work out and why it didn't work out, um, trying to uh, obfuscate as best she can with uh, a young man who comes in and um, and has to uh, deal with her. Um, it's it's a tough thing. Uh, and, and a nice young kid, Giacomo Fisano, plays the part, and he does it very well, being utterly clueless as to why this woman is being so nice to him. So, um, you know, but uh, God is in the details, and um, I guess Terry Nolan speaks to God because even the way... Um, Matteo lifts up his leg when he sits down. He, he does this grandiose way of sitting down that indicates uh, a less than elegant way. So this is a very successful production. And even though um, many of us have seen Streetcar a number of times and may feel that we don't need to see it again, I think it's worth the drive to uh, Second Street in Philadelphia to see um, a streetcar named Desire. You know, when I directed Streetcar many years ago and on Staten Island Community Theater production, I remember that uh, the woman who went out for Eunice was someone who had previously uh, played only leads, uh, uh, including like, when she was in Ingenue, she had played Kuniganda in Candy, wow. <laughs> and she had played Anne in, the, in Little Night Music, and then she graduated to the more adult leads uh, and uh, but she obviously read Streetcar and thought, you know, I can make an impression in this part. 
of Eunice. And the great thing was that she got her husband to come play Steve, uh, her husband in the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they had a great time and they were really they were really a highlight of that production, I have to say. How wonderful. Yeah. So the thing about Streetcar Named Desire is that, uh, you know, you could have a co-production with Intimate Apparel. Couldn't you? <laughs> I suppose you could. Sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> some of the uh, some of the costumes of the uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the Deep South might be considered mm-hmm. uh, intimate apparel. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And uh, yes, it, I thought I thought that when uh, there's this the smoking jacket mm, in yeah. uh, is that what they call it a smoking jacket? Mm. Yeah, in intimate apparel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I absolutely thought of streetcar. <laughs> huh. <laughs> So uh, Intimate Apparel is going to open at Lincoln Center Theater in the new house that's a downstairs theater. The um, uh, um, It opens up on uh, tomorrow night, uh, Monday night. Uh, but uh, we thought we'd give you a little preview of uh, what you should expect to see in Intimate Apparel. So, Michael, why don't you tell us about what Intimate Apparel is? And uh, I guess this is the second half of our Ricky Ian Gordon conversation. Oh, yeah. Well, I thought we decided we were mostly going to wait, but just as a preview yeah. – uh, it is uh, another new opera by Ricky and Gordon, uh, music by Ricky and Gordon, and libretto by Lynn Nottage, who wrote the wonderful, wonderful play on which uh, on which it is based. Uh, so she, uh, as Ricky told us when he spoke with us a couple of weeks ago, uh, she really tackled it as uh, that must be very difficult for someone to write a play and then they themselves have to condense it, uh, adapt it and condense it into an opera libretto. Uh, as everyone knows, uh, you know, there's a great deal of condensation involved aside from everything else because it takes so much longer to sing something than to speak it. So uh, if you if you have if you take a play and you make it into an opera libretto, you're going to have to cut out tremendous amounts of it um, and and really uh, really condense. Condense, I guess, is the best word for it. Uh, and she, I think she did a beautiful job of that, uh, as you will see in here if you get to see this. Uh, directed by Bartlett Cher, uh, who's been directing a lot of opera in addition to. Uh, let's do so much theater, uh, lately. And it's, um, and it's great to hear, uh, to hear an opera like this in such an incredibly intimate space. Uh, Ricky also spoke about how the, uh, this was commissioned by the Metropolitan Opera Peter Gelb, uh, years ago, and that the, the Met has always spoken about having a mini Met, uh, you know, actually constructing another theater that would that where they could do much more intimate uh, operas than in their their 4000 seat cavernous grand main auditorium. And that's been bandied about over the years. I think at one point there was supposed to be something built at uh, ground zero. Uh, as a part of the, right. you know, the That's new, right. Yeah. right. You know, but then Ooh. that never happened. I think maybe there was, then maybe there was talk of uh, in Hudson yards and then that didn't happen either. But, uh, but anyway, uh, so they've, I guess for the time being, they've given up on building an actual new theater for the mini met, but 
in this case, they're using the Mitzi Newhouse <laughs> for it, and it works beautifully. It's only, um, uh, as you will again see in here, the, this is scored for only two pianos. I don't know if it, if that if um, in the meantime they've prepared someone has prepared a full orchestration of it, but this is just two pianos, and it helps greatly in uh, audibility of the text. Uh, plus the fact that, as as I told Peter there are super titles projected against the back and side walls. Um, so you won't miss a word. And that helps greatly in uh, because it is a very compelling story about uh, just in a nutshell about this seamstress uh, working in the early, very early years of the 20th century uh, in lower Manhattan and uh, a black seamstress. And she is, very much alone until she starts a she begins a correspondence or actually the other person begins a correspondence uh, a fellow who's uh, working on the panama canal um and he hears about her from someone who knew her and he starts writing to her and they have an epistolary romance until uh, he does uh she does come to new york and they do get married and i won't say anything else because it would be a tremendous spoiler but it's i just loved the play when i saw it years ago and and i i'm really glad that it's been uh opera operatized opera <laughs> opera operaized <laughs> all right so um we will uh have full reviews of of uh that next week or the week after depending upon um i guess you guys have already seen it so it'll be definitely next week mm -hmm. all right so uh peter you got to see this uh new production of a shortened <laughs> long day's journey in tonight um was is it shortened i think that it is oh, uh, for yeah. audible yeah, yeah, long day straight into night light. So um, uh, to the point of which um, Kathleen, the uh, maid, uh, does not show up at all. So now it's a four character play rather than a five character play. Uh, this production has taken a lot of heat by those people who know long day's journey very well. I'm going to take it from a different vantage point. Maybe we can view this as a starter kit for Long Day's Journey in tonight. <laughs> the people who have never seen it and don't want to really deal with um, four hours of, uh, or more of uh, play and will appreciate the fact that this comes in somewhere be around uh, an hour and 50 minutes. Uh, we'll appreciate that. Uh, 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 what I did immediately following, immediately following, was watch the um, famous movie with Catherine Hepburn and Jason Robards, uh, as well as um, a, a complete version that the, the BBC did um, after that. And I have to say that I am tremendously impressed at the edits that Robert O'Hara made. Um, I'm not saying that Long Day's Journey uh, has a lot of fat on it, but what I am saying is the lines he took out were very judiciously chosen, and I really believe that even people who know the play inside out wouldn't say, wait, 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 he just dropped that line about blah, blah, blah. I could be wrong about that. I don't know what um, the average person or, or the fervent theatergoer, I should say, knows about Long Day's Journey. But nevertheless, um, let's. I, what happened was after seeing this play, I immediately went to these two videos. I, I was really curious. And my point is 
it may very well help people who see this shortened version to say, now I want to see the long one, while they may be people who say, I don't want to spend four hours watching a play. So um, maybe baby steps is what we can look at this as. And um, so I'm taking a very positive view of this because I think it's tremendously entertaining. And I, do I win a prize for being the millionth person to say Elizabeth Marvel is a Marvel? I mean, I guess everybody says that, <laughs> but she truly is. Whoa. Um, as Mary, the uh, dope addicted mother, uh, no fault of her own, really, um, but can't shake it. And everybody knows it. Um, everybody in this play has a flaw and a big flaw. And the thing is that everybody is in denial about that flaw. And um, well, that's not really true either, is it? Because um, we certainly have the younger Tyrone brother um, very much aware that he is sick very sick this is not a summer cold but the other people the the, you know, the older brother who drinks um and drinks like crazy um will be more inclined to criticize his father's cheapness while his father will criticize his drinking and uh, then of course they uh, both are aware of the mother's um everybody's aware of the mother's uh, addiction and um that makes them feel a little better about themselves in a strange way so it's all about denial it's all about um, being possessed by something, whether it's your fault or not. I mean, cheapness is uh, a choice. Drinking is a choice, at least for a while before it becomes a disease. Uh, dope addiction. Well, you know, that stuff and no fault of his own uh, tuberculosis. Well, um, who knows what he did that it might be a fault of his own. But anyway, um, this is if you don't know the play, I think you're really going to like it. Uh, if you do know the play, you might have issues. A lot of critics did. A lot of critics did. Um, one of my favorite critics, I'm not going to give him my name. This was the first play he ever saw way back in the 50s. And I thought, oh, my God, he is going to be apoplectic at this one. And he was. And he was. I've read what he uh, wrote, and I wasn't the slightest bit surprised. But um, was, once again, starter kit. Uh, I, when I saw the press release for this in the invite, I saw two hours, no intermission. And I was like, long day's journey, no intermission. Ooh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. So you also got uh, to see The Hang at Here. So tell us briefly about that. The Hang at, at Here, a small theater on 6th Avenue. It's a very different take on the Socrates story, uh, why Socrates was asked to take Hemlock, forced to take Hemlock. And, um, well, uh, <laughs> here's Taylor Mack, you know, who's uh, a pretty radical guy, needless to say. And um, he and his collaborator, uh, partner, I think, Matt Ray, uh, have done this musical. The music is phenomenal. It's not show music as in a traditional sense, but boy, it's intoxicatingly wonderful. Whoa. Um, it's beautifully directed by Nigel Smith and the choreography by Shannon Judson is terrific as well. Uh, what about Taylor Mack? Well, as I say, this is a very radical take. It's not um, to be taken literally and it can be confusing at times, but um, he plays uh, Socrates and uh, he does a, a terrific job of letting us know what he believes was in Socrates mind. Um, I think, though, what's going to happen more than anything else, uh, as much as the show is very enjoyable and um, that music, as I say, is 
terrific beyond belief. The fact remains, <laughs> what comes up um, more than anything else when people talk about the show are the costumes by, uh, I'm not sure if this is a company or a person, but Machine Dazzle is the credit. Does anybody know? Do you know if Machine Dazzle is a human being or a company? Uh, um, don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Anyway, um, you certainly see um, a lot of color on the set, um, a, a, a lot of uh, fishnet um, sequins, uh, as much as you find sand on a beach. And um, so it's just if you were deaf, you'd have a wonderful time at this show because uh, the costumes are so imaginative, uh, so distinctive. And, you know, the famous objection that people come out whistling the costumes no you'll come out whistling the music yes you will i think this matt ray has a tremendous musical sense and that's what i enjoyed most about the production it's the best music i've heard this year this season uh this year doesn't mean very much does it uh this season uh starting in uh june when uh, still some shows were performing um so i liked it a lot uh wild and crazy as it is and um hard to latch on to the plot as it is uh i was very glad i attended and i thought it really was pretty potent all right so that is uh the hang uh i'm trying to find more information about uh how long it's playing and things like that i'll have links back to taylor Mac's website and uh a hang website but they don't what i'm reading here at the hang website is that it was delayed until 2023 but obviously not because peter has seen it mm-hmm. so i swear it's there <laughs> <laughs> and i've gotten press releases oh look it's uh january 7th to the 16th so uh um, you mean february 16th no, again, this website is wrong. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I saw it last Saturday night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, was that the 6th? No, because we're no. the 30th. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, hard to get people there if you have <laughs> information. <laughs> That's not right there. All right. So uh, we'll have a link to all those things in uh, the show notes as well. Um, before we wrap up for today, uh, Michael, you had sent over this article about Tick, Tick, Boom and the editors of Tick, Tick, Boom and how they, uh, went about their work there. You want to say something about that? Oh yeah. It's, it's partly about the editing, but it's, it's, uh, just in general, how they did such a beautiful job in the film of Tick, Tick, Boom of getting, uh, the audience into the story in the beginning. And I noticed that. I mean, I certainly noticed it when I saw it from the first time I saw it, but uh, they they analyze how they do that. And I think it's uh, it's really great reading for anyone who has seen the film. Um, You know, I I suppose it it won't mean much if you read it before seeing the film. But if you have seen it, uh, just the way that uh, they use the faux documentary footage, uh, of Jonathan Larson at the beginning, uh, along with some actual documentary footage of, uh, for example, uh, Anthony Rapp um, making a, mm-hmm. a speech before the uh, before the first performance uh, of Rent uh, the uh, on the night that that Jonathan died, and and just and then going into the actual film film. Uh, of, that they're using, and also using the framing device of a performance of an early version of Tick, Tick, Boom that's supposedly being given 
by, uh, you know, being performed by Jonathan himself with uh, the other two uh, people played by Joshua Henry and Vanessa Hudgens. Uh, And it's really just just really great. Uh, uh, There were quotes from Lin-Manuel Miranda as well uh, as to how everyone collaborated in order to um, to get the story right. And they said that um, a key uh, to all of this is that one line that's heard in voiceover uh, just right at the very beginning where uh, where someone says uh, something like everything in this story is true, except for the parts that Jonathan made up. And just adding that one line gave them so much license to, uh, you know, to say, well, this is not a documentary. And, you know, uh, and and Andrew Garfield's not necessarily going to be doing an impersonation of Jonathan Larson, uh, although his performance is brilliant. Uh, and uh, so I, I just think it's really great to to read this wonderful article about how how much thought went into that. And uh, I think we will all agree that, uh, especially in a film of a musical, it's crucial um, to get the audience into the uh, the mindset that people are going to be singing to each other, you know, in in quote unquote realistic situations. And uh, and some films, I think, have failed because they did not do that well, whereas others have succeeded brilliantly. Uh, I, I think of the. Um, the moments in both versions of West Side Story where the gangs first start dancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think it works well in both versions. Mm-hmm. Some people think, some people feel, and I can see why they do, that it works even better in the remake or mm-hmm. the, the new version, uh, the recent version. Uh, so, but that's a perfect example of how, uh, uh, you know, uh, just a little, a little, a little change, a little, a little difference uh, can can really can really make or break um, a film musical uh, because it's so important to get the audience on your side and understand the the level of of reality and the and the way the story is going to be told. So I do recommend this article that we're putting in the show notes. I think it's really 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 well done. All right. So before we wrap up and get on to trivia and the musical moments, ever. I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to your finer podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Shirley Booth was the first person in the 20th century to have won an Oscar and then was heard on an original cast album. So who was the first person in the 21st century to have won an Oscar and was then heard on an original cast album? Well, Paul Witte guessed Catherine Zeta-Jones, who won the Oscar for Chicago in 2002 and then appeared on the Little Night Music cast album in 2009. So did Tony Janicki and Steve Bell. 
I had to tell them, no, it was someone earlier. And besides, Cedar Jones wasn't on an original cast album, but a revival cast album. Tony Janicki then wondered if Oscar winner Denzel Washington ever recorded the production of Julius Caesar in which he starred. Well, if he did, Tony, I guarantee you that his Julius Caesar recording wouldn't have resulted in an original cast album. Only those performers who opened the play in 1599 could have made an original cast album. Isaac Blevins guests Joel Gray, who won the 19, uh, uh, Oscar 1972 for Cabaret and appeared in Wicked. Good guess. But Josh Israel was first and Sean Logan second and last to get what I was driving at. And I truly commend them for doing so for in all the trivia questions I've ever asked. And by now there have been hundreds. I believe this one was the most treacherous. The answer, Mel Brooks on the original cast album of the producers. All right. He only has one couplet. Don't be stupid. Be a smarty. Come and join the Nazi party. But he an Oscar winner for the screenplay of the first producer films not the second one. No, no, um, does appear on the original cast album, which nobody can deny. This week's question is a little easier. What two characters in a musical were natives of France, but eventually moved to South Carolina? All right. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, first of all, let me explain the opening music, which uh, if you, uh, if our listeners don't know what it was, you were probably like, what the hell is this? (laughs) (laughs) Because it was, (laughs) quote unquote, Jonathan and Darlene Edwards performing I Love Paris uh from from Cole Porter's Can Can. And Jonathan and Darlene Edwards were actually Joe Stafford and her husband Paul Weston, uh two brilliant musicians, a great singer, Joe Stafford, and Paul Weston, a great uh arranger and uh music guy, who uh had these alter egos of these incredibly shockingly untalented people mm-hmm. named Jonathan Darley and Darley Edwards. And they made, um, uh, I'm not sure how many, uh, at least one comedy album uh, with these two massacring uh, all kinds of songs. Uh, they, and they did that for quite a while. I, I know they, uh, they continued to do it as late as uh, the 70s because one of the, their best recordings or by that, I mean, worst recordings is staying alive <laughs> uh, mm. from <laughs> Saturday Night Fever. But anyway, um, they uh, they were hilarious. And uh, of course, a little of that goes a long way. But but uh, they knew that. And I think that if you listen to re-listen to the opening <laughs> uh, music that we played today, that uh, I hope you'll agree that it's absolutely hysterically funny. Uh, and I thought we, uh, we would pick I Love Paris because I, I thought it was only natural that we pick um, a show tune. Uh, so uh, that was our opening music. And the reason I zeroed in on them was that our closing music is really something uh, I consider absolutely fascinating. I had been aware and, in fact, mentioned it uh, recently on a podcast that um that some of the music that wound up in West Side Story was originally intended for Candide because Leonard Bernstein was working on writing both at the same time. At least there was some overlap anyway. 
And I mentioned uh, G. Officer Krupke as as one melody, one piece of music that ended up in uh, West Side Story uh, that had originally been written for Candide. Obviously, in that case, the, the lyrics were changed greatly. And I also mentioned that the melody that became One Hand, One Heart in West Side Story was originally intended for Candide. And I knew, I even knew that uh, originally it just had, um, it didn't have the the quarter notes. It didn't have the triplets. It didn't have, Mm -hmm. originally it was just, so I knew all that. And I knew how Sondheim came in uh, to write the lyrics for West Side Story. uh, uh, And I knew that he begged, Bernstein to put in the triplets so that he that he could have, you know, more than one <laughs> syllable words. <laughs> and, and I knew all of that, but I did not know that the original version was recorded with the original Bernstein lyrics and without the triplets by Joe Stafford. <laughs> How funny. And until someone just posted it, uh, some fellow named Mitchell Ivers posted it somewhere. And I was absolutely flabbergasted i couldn't believe it um and so that's our closing music and uh i asked mitchell about some of the background and uh, he had it on some collection but he said it was an unissued columbia 45 Ah, rpm recording orchestra and chorus conducted by paul weston uh and he said it was on a box set of joe stafford recordings misidentified as one Based on One Hand, One Heart, Leonard Bernstein, Bernstein, Stephen Sondheim, uh, that illogically made it sound like a later revision. But I knew from stories about Lenny and Steve's initial meeting that Lenny had written it without the triplets. Supposedly, it was when Steve suggested adding quarter notes in the additional words that Lenny pronounced him a genius. (laughs) Mm. Uh, It was recorded. Are you ready? It Mm. was recorded two days before the first out of town performance of West Side Story. Wow. That was around the time that Lenny decided to give Steve full credit for the lyrics. I'm sure Lenny told the Westons, uh, Joe Stafford and Paul Weston, uh, to withdraw the recording, Uh. even, even though they had gone to the expense of hiring an orchestra and chorus. Wow. You can bet there was much drama attached to Lenny's generosity, meaning his generosity and uh, towards Sondheim. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, uh, so here it is, folks. I can't believe this exists. I, I personally think it's it's quite lovely in the original version. Oh. Uh, some people might find some of the lyrics a bit too um, whatever, uh, <laughs> too too fruity, too uh, okay. too over the top, too mm-hmm. too ha- too hard on the sleeve. Uh, but I, I don't. Uh, I th- I think it works on its own terms. Uh, but I also, of course, I love the revision. So here's here's one of the probably one of the biggest curiosities we'll ever give you mm. <laughs> as our musical moment. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.